Atrial fibrillation is the most common clinically significant arrhythmia, one that you will surely encounter in the hospital and in the ambulatory setting. Most of you by now are probably familiar with the two pillars of treatment for it, prevention of stroke and controlling the heart rate. However, AFib has much more complexity to it. Why does stroke risk vary so much between patients? Does every patient deserve a chance at sinus rhythm? Is rate control really the same as rhythm control? You probably heard the sound bites about AFib by now, so let's dig deeper into the pathophysiology and evidence. I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is another curbside consult from the NEJM Resident 360 podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Eli Galfan, who is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Section Chief of General Cardiology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I've had the good fortune of learning from him both as a medical student and as a resident, and I'm pleased to say that I'll have yet another chance to work with him as a fellow next year. Welcome, Dr. Galfand. Thanks, Mike. Real pleasure to be here, honoring this brand new, nice studio. Yeah, this is our inaugural chance to get out of our probably four-by-foot closet where we've been recording up until now, so this is an upgrade. So today, we're going to be talking about atrial fibrillation. So I think our audience is likely familiar with what it is. It's an irregularly irregular ventricular rhythm that's often very fast. But let's start with a review of the pathophysiology again, just to lay the groundworks for what we're going to talk about. So what is our current understanding of what causes AFib and what's going on in the heart when someone is in AFib? Well, Mike, we've known for over 20 years now that atrial fibrillation most often starts as a series of ectopic foci in the atria and more specifically in the muscular sleeves that that surround and envelop the pulmonary veins of four or five pulmonary veins which drain into the left atrium. And from there, the foci eventually spread to the rest of the atria and then to the atrioventricular node and then obviously the ventricles. So whereas atrial fibrillation early in a normal heart typically starts as atrial foci, ectopic atrial foci in the pulmonary veins, as the heart ages and as there's more atrial fibrillation, then the foci often start in the atria themselves around the areas of fibrosis in the atrium. And eventually, as atrial fibrillation progresses, there is uh, increased atrial inflammation, atrial wall inflammation, uh, electrical remodeling, and then actual physical remodeling with scar formation and sort of progression of this atrial fibrillation from foci-initiated arrhythmia to these multiple re-entrant wavelets in the atrium themselves. Excellent. Relative to other arrhythmia, it just seems so much more common than some of these other rare things we think about, like, like an AV nodal, re-entrant tachycardia, and things like that. What are some of our thoughts as to the epidemiology behind that the factors that lead to atrial fibrillation that is causing it to be so prevalent? Like, is it something that's changing about the demographics of people? And, you know, here we're trying to get at the risk factors a little bit too. Well, you're right. I mean, if you're seeing somebody who is 40 years old in clinic, they have about a one in four lifetime chance of developing atrial fibrillation. So this is by far the most common uh, sustained arrhythmia currently. And every projection we make uh, suggests that the incidence and prevalence of atrial fibrillation is just going to increase. And this gets both at the substrate for atrial fibrillation and at the triggers for atrial fibrillation, which are probably important concepts to review. When we talk about substrate for atrial fibrillation, what we mean is the state of the atrium, the state of atrial tissue, the state of the ventricular myocardium and general cardiac structure, together with all the risk factors that the patient has that are primarily extracardiac. 
And those are things that are well-known to you and, and well-known to the audience. And these are factors that are increasing the population. Hypertension, sleep apnea, diabetes, coronary disease, cardiomyopathy, etc. In terms of triggers, what triggers atrial fibrillation, you know, some of the triggers are well-characterized. Others are still under investigation. But things like high adrenergic tone, hemodynamic stress, sometimes atrial inflammation and things like pericarditis hypoxia, and then sometimes direct manipulation of the atria in cases of cardiac or thoracic surgery. These are all triggers of atrial fibrillation. And I think it's important to understand that as we age and as the burden of cardiac disease in an individual and as well as in the population as a whole increases, really the substrate grows and the triggers needed to initiate and sustain atrial fibrillation decrease. So as an individual person ages, it takes less to initiate atrial fibrillation and less stimulus or trigger to sustain it. Mm -hmm. That all makes a lot of sense. And then by proxy, would it be true that if we did a better job of controlling diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea, that we would decrease incidence of the burden of atrial fibrillation? I think that's the hope. And there is certainly some research suggesting that really without controlling the some of the baseline conditions and some of the common triggers, a lot of the therapies that we spend most of our time talking about and frankly comparing to each other may be attenuated or may frankly be equivalent to sham procedures. And one good example is treatment of sleep apnea. The recent data from our institution suggests that in patients with severe sleep apnea who have atrial fibrillation, not treating sleep apnea but doing catheter ablation is essentially equivalent to doing a sham procedure, essentially atrial catheter ablation of atrial fibrillation is ineffective in patients with sleep apnea unless you treat the sleep apnea itself. And this really gets into many other things we do in cardiology where we have a lot of trials and we spend a lot of time talking about the new advanced therapies and sometimes we're all guilty of forgetting to sort of step back and look at the patient as a whole and treat the problems that kind of led there. Yeah, that's such an important point. So let's address one of the first pillars of atrial fibrillation management, which is this association with stroke. It seems to have come about because of epidemiology studies that we've noticed that the patients we observe to have atrial fibrillation tend to have a higher chance of stroke. Now, what could explain this, the pathophysiology behind the link of AFib and stroke risk? This is one of these trick questions, Mike. Now, I know you don't mean it for it to be a trick question, but it's more complicated than I think sometimes it seems. We've always been taught, at least I was taught in medical school, that essentially the reason you have stroke and atrial fibrillation is a single one, and that is, you know, instead of this free-flowing river of blood in the atrium, there's more of a swamp in the atrium, and, you know, in vast majority of patients, the left atrial appendage serves as a nidus for blood stagnation and eventually clot formation, and then this clot dislodges and goes to the brain, or really anywhere else, but goes to the brain and causes a stroke. And in large part, this is true in that we have extensive data to suggest that, you know, in more than 90% of patients with non-valvular, non-rheumatic atrial fibrillation, the clots indeed form on the left atrial appendage, and there are even uh, reports with echo of sort of just happening to do imaging during this clot dislodgement and travel through the heart. So that mechanism is certainly there, but there's probably more to it. One issue is that, the, again, there are studies showing that there's atrial inflammation in atrial fibrillation, and inflammation begets procoagulable state. And so 
you know, stroke in atrial fibrillation is not just a hemodynamic disease, it's, a, it's an pro-inflammatory disease of the atria and the cardiac myocardium. And then, of course, the other issue is that patients who develop atrial fibrillation have some of the common risk factors shared by the population as a whole as a risk factor for stroke. So folks with hypertension and diabetes and vascular disease are more likely to get atrial fibrillation and are also more likely to have a stroke. Folks who are older are more likely to get atrial fibrillation and more likely to get a stroke for all the other reasons, which are beyond the scope of this podcast. So there is this coexistence of risk factors for AFib and stroke, independent of just this hemodynamic clot model. Excellent. And I think that's the you know really the point that we want to get at is that, well, I think most questions in medicine, you can always respond with, it's complicated because we're always finding out more aspects of any dimension here. And certainly, I was taught the very same thing in medical school too, that people form clots in the left atrium because it's just not passing the blood by as easily and rapidly as a normal heart does. But and the pooling of the blood is probably what makes you form these blood clots. And as you mentioned, the, the, you know, the fact that closing the left atrial appendage seems to help in certain situations also argues favor of that hypothesis. But it's interesting that there is all this other evidence suggesting that you know, these patients just have general risk factors for having stroke. Nonetheless, we have really good evidence telling us that these patients should receive anticoagulation. They do do better once they receive anticoagulation. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what are the ways that we can make this determination. A new patient presents with atrial fibrillation and they're, let's say, they're persistently in it. How should we make that determination? Right. Well, I think you mentioned you know, persistent atrial fibrillation and, it, and it's probably good to step back and just define some terms because we do frequently use these terms in clinical practice but also in trials. Yeah, that's a good point. And when we talk about duration of atrial fibrillation, the terms themselves don't matter as much except they help us get on the same page about a particular patient and also help us um, enroll the right patients in the right trials and also interpret the trials. But in general, we refer to paroxysmal atrial fibrillation as AFib that continues for less than seven days and then uh, patients convert spontaneously. When atrial fibrillation persists for more than seven days, we call it persistent. And when there is really not a great opportunity to get the patient out of atrial fibrillation, we sort of concede that the patients are more or less going to spend the rest of their life in atrial fibrillation. We refer to it as permanent or chronic atrial fibrillation. There are some sort of electrophysiologic further subdivisions and classifications, which I think are less relevant to the general audience. But I think getting back to your question, I think the first thing I often teach the medical students and the residents is that 40% of patients with atrial fibrillation are completely asymptomatic. So four out of 10 patients don't really know they have atrial fibrillation the first time they get it. And so stroke is often the first symptom. And strokes in atrial fibrillation tend to be large because, of course, as we just discussed, there typically is a clot in the left atrial appendage, and that clot is typically not small. And when it embolizes, it tends to occlude a major intracranial artery. So a devastating stroke can be the first symptom of atrial fibrillation. And conversely, when somebody is in atrial fibrillation uh, in your office, you know, these large strokes are really what you have to worry about and think about when you're deciding whether to put a patient on a blood thinner. When talking to patients about what the risk of stroke is, I often start with just a general statement that on average, having atrial fibrillation quintuples your risk of stroke compared to somebody who never has atrial fibrillation. 
Now, as you mentioned correctly, there is a very wide spectrum of risk of stroke among patients with atrial fibrillation, and we tend to use some of the conventional risk scores. We, for years, used something called the CHADS2 risk score, but we've migrated to another risk score called the, the CHADS-VASC score, and it's sort of easily accessible online if the audience isn't exactly familiar with it. There's also a good website called chadsvask.org, which is basically an online calculator for stroke and bleeding risk in atrial fibrillation. And for those of us who use electronic medical records, you can also click a button and directly paste the result into your note for sort of better clinical communication. And the CHADS uh, VASC score just review uses fairly common sense risk factors of stroke and AFib, such as congestive heart failure. So C stands for congestive heart failure, H for hypertension, A stands for age, where you get two points for being 75 or older, or one point for being 65 to 74. D stands for diabetes. S stands for a stroke, for which you get two points. VASC stands for vascular disease. And then there's also a point that uh, women get for gender, because women have a slightly higher risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation. And the CHADS VASC score in particular uh, stratifies patients into low, intermediate, and high-risk groups, where if you have a CHADS VASC score of 1, the annual risk of stroke is approximately 1%, whereas if you have a CHADS VASC score of 9, which is the most you can get, the average risk of stroke is about 15%. So really, there's a you know 10 to 15-fold difference between the lowest and the highest risk groups. We generally recommend that patients with a CHADS VASC score of 0 not be anticoagulated. They, the risk of anticoagulation in terms of bleeding outweighs the risk of uh, stroke. In patients who have a CHADS-VASC score of 2 or greater, we definitely recommend strong consideration of anticoagulation unless there are some clear contraindications, which we can talk about. And for CHADS-VASC score of 1, it really is more of a discussion with the patient. If they're a low risk of bleeding, I often recommend that we commence anticoagulation. Certainly if they're older and have a higher risk of bleeding, then uh, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. That's great. And and I do think, just really emphasizing that last... Of course, to interrupt you, they can't really be too old because then they would get two points. So you, you can't be an 80-year-old with a chads vast score of one. Right, right. Absolutely. And you know, just to emphasize that last point that I think in a lot of medical decision-making in medicine, there's this idea of threshold for treatment and for the chads 2 vast score or the chads 2 score, we're looking for that, you know, again, for the typical patient, that threshold for treatment where we think the net benefit outweighs the net harm being bleeding here. And we're looking for that. It seems like in most guidelines to say we're looking for that 2% annual risk of stroke as being that magical point where we think, based on the studies, that you get more benefit, you get more reduction in stroke that probably outweighs the bleeding risk. But then it's always this bleeding risk that's somewhat nebulous. And I know people talk about risk scores out there to help you guess the risk of bleeding, but from everything I've read, once you get into the higher CHADS-VASC score, really, yes, your bleeding risk tends to be higher, but your benefit from anticoagulation is really very high, too, that you really ought to consider it. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on... I always have thoughts. Are people, <laughs> are people too uh, hesitant sometimes for putting people on anticoagulation? Well, you're exactly right, Mike. I mean, one of the problems, of course, with the, all the bleeding risk scores is that the same risk factors exist for stroke and bleeding. So somebody who's generally a higher risk for stroke is generally also a higher risk for bleeding. And these discussions can get relatively complicated, 
But again, sometimes I think it's helpful just to step back and think broadly about what it is that we know how to treat and what it is that we don't know how to treat well. And the risk of offending my stroke neurology friends, a large stroke is very difficult to treat sometimes. And the sequelae are very often, as we all know, completely devastating for the patient and the family. It's not that a serious bleed is a good thing, and certainly in cases of intracranial bleeding, we also don't know how to treat these things very well, but a lot of other bleeding can be controlled, people can be transfused, interventions can be done, anticoagulation can be interrupted, and so in these discussions, often we err on the side of anticoagulating. But I completely agree, this is a complicated discussion. You know, one of the other things, I guess, that I often find trainees in their early uh, stages of training thinking about is when this person with atrial fibrillation gets anticoagulated, now they can't have a stroke. And obviously that's, you know, that's not true. Anticoagulation decreases the risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation by anywhere between 65 and 80 percent in most studies. It does not by any means eliminate it. And there's multiple reasons for this, which I think are worth reviewing. One reason we already touched upon earlier, and that is, you know, just because you have atrial fibrillation doesn't mean your stroke is going to be because of atrial fibrillation. You have a lot of other risk factors for for stroke. The second thing is, and that's especially true when the vast majority of patients or all the patients who are anticoagulated were on warfarin therapy or other senocumerol therapies, and that is that the success of anticoagulation with warfarin or other vitamin K antagonists depends on your being appropriately anticoagulated and your INR being in a therapeutic range. And we know from both from clinical trials and from the real-world studies that in the real world, people are in the therapeutic INR range on average about 50% of the time. And in trials, 60 to 70% of time in therapeutic range is considered excellent. And, you know, in clinical practice, we certainly see patients who are able to be very strict about their INR and achieve time in therapeutic range over 80 or even 90%, but these patients are typically an exception. This is a little bit less of an issue, we think, with the direct oral anticoagulants, which I guess we probably will talk about in a little bit, and that may account for some of the advantages of these direct oral anticoagulants over warfarin and warfarin analogs. Yeah. So actually, let's just jump right in a little bit, it's, and you know, we can probably spend the entire session talking about the direct oral anticoagulant, but we should probably just do a quick recap of which drugs are out there and which ones, you know, maybe you can offer some thoughts as to which ones you like and what clinical situations you tend to like one or the other, or are they all pretty good and you should just pick the one that the patient can afford and use. So we have on the market now, at least in the U.S. where we are, we have dabigatran, we have rivaroxaban, we have apixaban, and I haven't seen very many patients on adoxaban yet, but all four are approved and all four had their seminal studies published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So they pretty much are all non-inferior to warfarin therapy with the caveat that some of the studies had time in therapeutic range for warfarin as low as 55% and some had better closer to 70%. But four different drugs, what are some pros and cons for choosing one over the other or are they all pretty good at keeping people from reducing the risk of stroke? Well, I think you can make this easy or complicated for yourself. And there are certainly intricacies to all of the studies in terms of the populations recruited for individual studies. I think the bottom line is that between the four newer anticoagulants, they have never been compared to each other. 
and it is unlikely that anytime soon or ever there will be a direct head-to-head comparison in atrial fibrillation, primarily for cost reasons. But they've all been individually compared to warfarin, and as you said, all are at least non-inferior, and in some situations, they are slightly superior to warfarin for stroke prevention. I think the couple of big messages from these medications are, in all the studies, the rate of intracranial bleed is about half that on warfarin, and there are some theories about why that is, but the bottom line is we don't exactly understand why these drugs are better, but they are significantly better uh, in terms of the rate of intracranial bleeding. Uh, most medications, most direct oral anticoagulants are associated with a slightly higher rate of, of nuisance bleeding than warfarin. But in general, I think the big message is they are substantially more convenient for patients than warfarin, but more expensive. Although the insurance coverage has been actually quite good recently, especially since more of them came on the market. I don't have a favorite. I use really all four of them uh, more or less interchangeably. There's some specific interactions with some of the Parkinsonian uh, medications, but these situations are not very common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think, uh, if I recall correctly, that apixaban just being more hepatically metabolized, it's probably a better drug for people who are on the lower end of creatinine clearance. That's often true. It's also uh, the agent that a lot of my colleagues use for older patients preferentially. And then you know, for younger patients, dibigatran is not a bad agent, especially for those who are at higher risk of stroke and lower risk of bleeding. You know, the issue of bleeding while on the newer anticoagulant agents or direct oral anticoagulants comes up frequently and certainly was of major concern when the first few of these medications came on the market. Just as means of brief review, dibigatran is the only one of the four that is a direct thrombin inhibitor. And the other three drugs, apixaban, rivaroxaban, and doxaban, are factor 10A um, antagonists. So the mechanism of action is slightly different. But in terms of reversal, there is now an agent, the name of which I have an incredibly hard time pronouncing. Yeah, I don't think uh, I can pronounce it either. Right. So the trade name is Praxbind, but the generic name, which, of course, we all try to use, is Idirucizumab. But I'm sure the company will correct me. But in any case, it's a monoclonal antibody that is now available. It's stocked in most emergency departments. It's very expensive. I think it's over $3,000 a dose. But the effects of dibigatran specifically can be reversed very quickly. There's a drug in the pipeline, fairly late in the pipeline, hopefully will be approved, which is going to be available for reversal of factor 10A inhibitors, and that's indexinet alpha, which is actually kind of an interesting molecule. It's a decoy receptor for which I understand the drugs basically have a higher affinity than for the native receptor. So that it's a drug that fools the circulating molecule into basically seduces it into binding to it instead of the real receptor. And so that's not on the market yet, but the hope is that it will be within a few months to a year or so. And we can also point the listeners to, on our webpage, some of the studies, again, which were published in the New England Journal, both the study for idirucizumab and I think you're doing a better job of this. <laughs> or the Adexanet Alpha. So I do want to bring out this one just crazy observation, which, again, I'm not paid by the makers of Pixaban to say this, but, you know, we did publish the Averos trial where it was compared the Pixaban to patients taking warfarin who, for some reason, it was comparing a Pixaban to aspirin in patients who couldn't be on a vitamin K antagonist for anticoagulation. And they found that 
the bleeding risks in terms of major bleeding risk was relatively similar. And that's just amazing to me that a, a true anticoagulant at therapeutic doses would have similar profile to aspirin. Now, granted, the patients weren't all taking baby dose aspirin and some were on higher, but I think it drives home for me that at least compared to warfarin, these drugs probably do have lower bleeding risk. And what happens when they do bleed is an entirely other question, but you know, having a major bleeding on warfarin, even with reversal, doesn't mean they're going to be saved from that catastrophic event. Correct. I think that study also pointed out the fact that taking aspirin is not an entirely benign proposition. There's a substantial bleeding risk associated with taking aspirin. Yeah. We're not out to promote any one drug over the other. They're all very good for their own reasons. All right. So we spent a good amount of time digesting the first pillar of treatment for AFib, which is that we see this observation with stroke risk and devastating consequence of AFib. And we do everything we can to reduce that risk. And there's some data to help guide us as to how to make a decision of should somebody be on anticoagulation or not. Now, let's turn to this other pillar of when someone has atrial fibrillation, they have fast heart rates and they have irregular heart rates. And I think it's helpful to maybe start off with a hypothetical scenario. So let's say a 62-year-old gentleman comes into the emergency room and he has history of OSA and he has history of hypertension and he's here with palpitations and lightheadedness that's been going on for about five to six hours. He's not sure exactly how long, but he's fairly certain that he wasn't having palpitation before then. And in the ED, the EKG is pretty diagnostic of atrial fibrillation. We won't really go into the details of how do you make that diagnosis for this podcast. Now we're faced with the question of what do we do to treat him immediately? He's symptomatic. He's in atrial fibrillation. I think it's easy based on the guidelines that if he were hemodynamically unstable from it and he's starting to turn pale in the ED with rapidly increasing heart rate and his blood pressure is tanking that we ought to consider urgent cardioversion. So that's always a possibility. But say this patient is sitting in the ED with a heart rate of about 130 and his blood pressure is normal. What's our first step for treating this patient? Well, let's step back and figure out why people feel unwell with atrial fibrillation. And there could be several reasons for that. One is somebody may actually be dependent on this atrial kick in sinus rhythm for their hemodynamics. And that tends to be more true in patients with small, hypertrophied, inelastic, stiff hearts, such as seen in chronic hypertensive disease, uh, severe aortic stenosis, infiltrative cardiomyopathy, diabetic cardiomyopathy, etc. It is less likely to be present in somebody with a large, baggy heart or somebody who is young with a pretty compliant myocardium. Patients can also just feel palpitations. So we don't really know why that happens, but some people are more sensitive to having an irregular heart rate. Like you said, only four out of 10 patients don't even know that. Correct. And in patients who are intolerant of this irregularity in their pulse, the heart rate doesn't even really have to be fast. Some people just feel uncomfortable when their heart is irregular. And then, of course, if atrial fibrillation is not diagnosed or, frankly, not felt by a patient for some time and the heart rate is sufficiently high, then one can develop something called a tachycardia cardiomyopathy, which is a common presentation for those of us who work in the hospital frequently. It's probably not very common in the community, but certainly we see it enough to worry about it. And essentially, patients come in with, for all intents and purposes, what for all intents and purposes looks like a dilated cardiomyopathy in the setting of rapid atrial fibrillation. There's good news and bad news about tachycardia cardiomyopathy. The bad news, of course, is it could be very severe 
and patients can be in profound heart failure and even cardiogenic shock. But the good news is that if cardiomyopathy is solely due to a fast heart rate, in a majority of cases with rate and or rhythm control, cardiomyopathy can completely reverse and heart can become essentially normal again. Wow. But for the patient that you propose, this is a common presentation in the emergency department, clinic, and urgent care units. And you essentially have to be dichotomous in your thinking. Of course, if the patient's stable, you have the luxury of doing this. And the dichotomy is, one, we have to talk about the stroke risk with the patient. We have to evaluate them with one of the risk calculators that we mentioned. I guess we won't go back to this again, but the patient you presented would be certainly a candidate for anticoagulation, and you would start them either on one of the heparins, IV heparin or low molecular heparin, low molecular weight heparin, and then decide on starting them either on warfarin or in a direct oral anticoagulant. If you're starting them on a direct oral anticoagulant, you don't really need to give them heparin because the onset of action is very fast, and you could just begin by giving them one of the direct oral anticoagulants by mouth in the emergency department. And then, of course, the second arm of your clinical management is control of rate and or rhythm. If the patient feels well, rhythm control immediately is not really necessary, and you can focus on bringing the heart rate down to improve hemodynamics and improve the well-being. And you can certainly choose either a beta blocker or a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker. There's a, there tends to be a lot of discussion on rounds and on the wards about which one is sort of quote-unquote better. And I think the bottom line is neither one is better. You can use what's more appropriate. You know, if somebody has asthma, you probably would want to stick with the calcium channel blocker somebody has some contraindication to a calcium channel blocker, you can stick with the beta blocker. They're essentially interchangeable for all intents and purposes. We also used to um, obsess over the use of digoxin, and I'll tell you that digoxin tends to be relatively ineffective for both acute rate control, but also in general in people who are in a high adrenergic state in the hospital, in the emergency department. There's some niche uses for digoxin still, but they're fairly small. So I guess if you're asking me what I would do is I would do a physical exam, rule out contraindications for anticoagulation, commence anticoagulation with an oral, direct oral anticoagulant, and start by using some oral beta blockade because you're not describing a situation where you need to do things in the next five minutes. You have the luxury of giving oral medicines. So I think in this case, gentle control of cardiac rate is reasonable. Again, we were fairly dogmatic before. Several recent studies came out about controlling somebody's heart rate and atrial fibrillation very tightly. We wondered whether they would do poorly if we were a bit more liberal or lenient with their heart rate control. And there have been recent studies certainly to suggest that we're probably okay being somewhat more lenient. There's a trial called uh, RACE2, which looked at patients randomized to what was called a lenient rate control with limits of about 110 at rest. And then a more strict rate control in line with what we used to do, which is a heart rate of less than 80 at rest and less than 110 with moderate exercise. This is all physically active patients. And being lenient was really non-inferior in terms of cardiovascular death, heart failure admissions, stroke, bleeds, etc. But in order to be strict about rate control in these patients, on average, they needed about nine times more visits to the physician wow. than those who were with whom we were more lenient, and certainly they required more medications. Strict rate control didn't really achieve a lot of benefits here and just create a lot of resource utilization for the physicians and the patients. So generally, if folks are relatively asymptomatic, once you've achieved initial rate control, less than 110 at rest is quite reasonable. 
for symptomatic patients and those with other comorbidities, more, more strict rate control, less than 80 is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Great. And just delving into that a little bit, because I do think as we're about to get into the last component of what we're going to be talking about, which is you know, once we control the heart rate in the algorithm, typically it should be a consideration of whether or not I think someone should just continue to remain in, uh, like you said, going back to our earlier discussion of the categories of are we going to make the determination this person is going to be in chronic atrial fibrillation and that they will remain in it for theoretically the rest of their life. Just bringing back this idea, you know, a lot of people probably have heard the heard about the RACE2 trial or at least heard the soundbite that, oh, lenient control is just as good as strict control and therefore let's not expose people to unnecessary costs and side effects of too much additional medication. But that's the soundbite. But I think the, the worry or the trouble sometimes is that as residents, you hear that and you start to apply that or you think that applies categorically to almost every patient that you see. And I think your point about being more symptomatic if they're at a higher rate is probably a good reason to try to get them down to a patient down to a slower rate and that there's definitely caveats to a lot of these studies, which you know tend to select their patients pretty tightly in terms of the inclusion and exclusion criteria. So let's now go back to the point I brought up earlier, which is I've heard some cardiologists say that they're a little bit too dogmatic, but they say that a lot of patients with new atrial fibrillation should deserve a shot at seeing if they can revert back to sinus rhythm and stay in sinus rhythm, and that you know perhaps we avoid these long-term consequences of if we let them be in uh, atrial fibrillation, some of them, small, small portion of them may develop a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy, and that if they can easily remain in sinus rhythm without much aggressive treatment, then that's better for the long term. Is there merit to that sentiment? And should we, as if a primary care doctor gets a patient who now has new atrial fibrillation, should we just let them be because that the affirm trial showed that rate control versus rhythm control hasn't shown a demonstrable difference? Again, these are relatively healthy patients that they're looking at. I think you've raised a lot of points, a lot of great points in those statements. We can certainly talk about the AFFIRM trial in a second. Again, I I would go back to what I mentioned very early in our conversation, that sort of letting people be in atrial fibrillation, especially young people in atrial fibrillation, may be okay, but often it reflects our ignorance of the factors that led them to have atrial fibrillation in the first place. So patient you describe in your case vignette is a great example. It's a 62-year-old man with a little bit of hypertension and sleep apnea. So the biggest risk that this gentleman has for a fib is sleep apnea and uncontrolled hypertension. So just kind of letting him be in atrial fibrillation because he's crossed some imaginary threshold for his risk factors being quote unquote bad enough for him to develop a fib is probably not the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is to really be very strict about his comorbidities and to be sure that his sleep apnea is perfectly addressed, that his weight loss is addressed that his blood pressure is objectively well-controlled, and then I suspect he will either be in sinus rhythm on his own or he will need to have a rhythm control strategy to get him into sinus rhythm. And if the underlying risk factors are supremely well-controlled, he may actually not require much of anything else to be in sinus rhythm because, again, we talked about the substrate and the triggers for atrial fibrillation. And theoretically speaking, this somebody like this who's 60 years old shouldn't have a lot of substrate for AFib. It's the, really the triggers that we're addressing with all these baseline risk factor modifications. You know, in terms of being dogmatic about everybody deserves a shot at sinus rhythm, I mean, there's probably some truth to it. There have been studies 
of rate versus rhythm control, several studies, several fairly well-designed and large studies. You mentioned a firm, which was, I think, the first and probably still the largest study of rate versus rhythm control, something like 4,000 patients. And they were basically randomized to control of rhythm with mostly antiarrhythmic drug therapy versus just rate control. And essentially, this study showed no survival advantage to rhythm control. There's actually a slight trend towards increased survival with rate control, especially if the patients were older and had no heart failure. But there's a lot of criticisms about all these studies, including a firm. First of all, if you look at how many patients actually were in sinus rhythm at, let's say, five years in this study, it's not a surprise that in the rate control group, only 35% of the patients were in sinus rhythm because we've essentially made no attempt to control their rhythm, no special attempt, I should say. But in the strict rhythm control arm, still only 65% of the patients were in sinus rhythm, despite uh, the best attempts to control their rhythm. There's also not a lot of younger patients in that trial, so it may not be generalizable to our younger atrial fibrillation population. And in any trial like this, there's often an inherent selection bias. In other words, if you have severe symptoms of atrial fibrillation, is the investigator at your side really going to randomize you to rhythm versus rate control? So for patients with severe symptoms, for example, like the one you presented who required a visit to the, I think, the emergency department because of symptoms, that particular study may not actually be applicable. You know, these are early studies of rate versus rhythm control. There are more recent studies addressing more specific subsets of of populations, such as patients with congestive heart failure, and what are perhaps more sophisticated and certainly more technologically advanced methods of rhythm control, such as catheter ablation. The Castle AF study, which I think was also published in the New England Journal, where we're sitting right now. Just in February, hot off the press. Is that correct? Yes. Did I get the journal right? Are we at New England Journal or is this JAMA? Sorry. In any case, the Castle AF trial looked at symptomatic heart failure patients, class 2 to 4 heart failure, a low EF, I think less than 35%, and randomized them to catheter ablation versus medical therapy. And in the medical therapy arm, the investigator basically could choose what to do. It could be rhythm control, it could be rate control. And they showed that catheter ablation was associated with a decreased rate of death or heart failure hospitalization. Fairly substantial absolute decreases of 16% in death or heart failure hospitalization. And mortality alone was reduced by 12%. Also, a lot of criticisms about the trial where, you know, it's an open label design and Rhythm control was encouraged, so pure rate control versus ablation weren't really compared, and that's often the strategy that is safer in older patients with severe congestive heart failure. But regardless of the criticisms, or I guess criticism notwithstanding, perhaps, there's some intriguing data where it's not as simple as you're just going to choose rate control because it's really no worse than rhythm control. The selection can be fairly intricate. But again, I think, you know, I I know I mentioned this twice already, but for the listeners, but as we get into these more and more complicated discussions about exactly which antiarrhythmic drug we choose for exactly which patients, which I I don't think we should get into today anyway, you know, various algorithms for how much structural heart disease you have to have to be safely used this drug, et cetera, et cetera. Really, what's probably more important is stepping back and looking at what factors may have led to development of atrial fibrillation in this particular patient that you're taking care of and trying to address these really before or to get at least together with treatment of atrial fibrillation itself. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree, and I think that's part of the challenges of young trainee learning about these disease processes. You get bogged down in all these different therapeutic agents you have to now memorize or learn about, and then treatment pathways and how do you decide which drugs to control their rate, and now the rates is controlled, and you got to think about stroke risk, and you got to think about perhaps are they a better candidate for an attempt in sinus rhythm. But I think it's a great point. And taking a step back, we look at atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease in general, and then you look at AFib, and then you look at heart failure, and so many of these diseases share the same common risk factors, and that treating those risk factors is probably do just as much to for some of these other things that we try to do with the patients. And just to point out this one fact, which again, I think that the overlap of atrial fibrillation and heart failure and the treatment of the two is fascinating and probably worthy of an entire podcast in and of itself. But perhaps we can just talk briefly about the overlap between the two, because you know, we already talked about one side of it, which is tachycardia. Chronic tachycardia can lead you into heart failure. And there's thought that that just gets into a vicious cycle. And then on the flip side, it seems that being in heart failure puts you at perhaps higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation. So I guess the Caswell AF kind of gets us this idea that the two really can get into this vicious cycle and that perhaps we're trying to break it in this case or other cases where we want to do better with sinus rhythm. Yeah, I don't know what the take-home point is, honestly, of Castle AF. I've been thinking about it for a few months now. It's clear that the patients enrolled in Castle AF are sicker than an average atrial fibrillation patient. And certainly once you develop heart failure of any etiology, this again gets into the substrate and trigger discussion. There's you know, vastly more substrate for not just atrial arrhythmias, but ventricular arrhythmias. There's a concept of cardiomyopathy, not just being a ventricular cardiomyopathy, but the atrial cardiomyopathy. And there are lots of intriguing data, for example, for actually visualizing atrial scar with the newer imaging modalities, such as late gadolinium enhancement technique, cardiac MRI. So we know that once people have developed cardiomyopathy, there's more fibrosis in the heart, not just in the ventricles, but in the atria. And we know that the more fibrosis there is, the more atrial fibrillation there is, and that we know that, again, a higher fibrosis burden probably predicts recurrence uh, rates of atrial fibrillation even after catheter ablation. So there's a very complex relationship between cardiomyopathy in the classic sense, you know, disease of the ventricular myocardium, and disease of the atrial myocardium and atrial arrhythmias. And I think it's incompletely understood, but Castle AF uh, gets us in the right direction. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of the goal of this podcast is I think because AFib is so common, most of our listeners have probably have thought or have been taught a lot of the basic principles of managing it. And I'm hoping that through this episode and our discussion, we're revealing a little bit the complexity behind the scenes and that it's not just as simple as put them on a beta blocker, start them on an anticoagulant and see how they do. And that a lot of really smart people are doing very interesting investigation into atrial fibrillation. What is it? Why is it so common? And how else can we better understand the disease process? That's right. Excellent. So let's just recap briefly what we talked about and give our listeners some take-home points. So we started off today talking about the first pillar of atrial fibrillation, which is its link between AFib and stroke risk. We discussed a little bit the pathophysiology of what might cause stroke in the first place, both from a mechanical, hemodynamic, mechanical perspective, but perhaps maybe also from a just a general prothrombotic association. We talked about using the chats 2 vas score as assessment of how high somebody's risk is and figuring out the threshold for when to treat them. We then moved on to a brief discussion of the 
direct oral anticoagulants compared to warfarin as options for anticoagulation. Then for the second half, we touched upon how to manage the other side, which is the fast heart rate associated with atrial fibrillation, controlling it in the acute setting with beta blockers or calcium channel blockers if necessary. Otherwise, we can maybe have a little bit more time if the patient is feeling okay, not as symptomatic, to take our time with slowing their heart rate down, controlling it. That yes, in the typical patient, lenient control may be just as good as strict control of heart rate, but that all depends on the symptoms and the patient's degree of comorbidity. And that yes, trials have shown that being in sinus rhythm perhaps is the same as being in persistent or chronic atrial fibrillation in perhaps an older patient population, but there are still cases where we ought to think about getting a patient in the sinus rhythm. Anything I've missed or any other take-home points that you want our listeners to walk away with? No, I think it summarized everything very nicely. I guess one quick thing I would mention for the early career listeners is atrial flutter, which often is described as the cousin of atrial fibrillation, and you would recognize it in the ECG by these classic sawtooth pattern waves, flutter waves. And often, unlike atrial fibrillation, where we talked about the wavelets and atrial foci in the pulmonary veins, most cases of atrial flutter are caused by a macro reentrant circuit, so kind of a large circuit, mostly in the right atrium, though it can sometimes be in the left atrium as well, but mostly in the right atrium. The antithrombotic management is essentially the same as in atrial fibrillation. The rate control is sometimes a little bit more difficult, but the good news is about atrial flutter is that catheter ablation is actually remarkably effective for that particular arrhythmia, and the cure rates of atrial flutter with catheter ablation are in excess of 90%. So if you see somebody in atrial flutter, I would say three things. One, don't forget to anticoagulate. Two, look for the cause of atrial flutter somewhere in the lungs. So pulmonary disease is often associated with flutter. And three, contact your neighborhood electrophysiologist and see if the patient is a candidate for catheter ablation. Excellent. Absolutely. And yes, just for the sake of length, we didn't get a chance to really delve into some of these additional topics of atrial fibrillation, but I do think it's important to be aware of atrial flutter because of that difference that you can actually cure it or cure some of it much more easily than atrial fibrillation. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming today and joining us. I really appreciate the chance to talk about AFib. It's a common topic, may seem boring to some listeners, but I hope that we've given them more to think about for this topic. Thanks, Mike. A real pleasure. All right. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Please visit our guide on atrial fibrillation in the rotation prep section on cardiology for more information at resident360.nejm.org. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Eli Galfand. Our production team here at the NEJM includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Kathy Stern, Dr. Karen Soko Gutierrez, Dr. Lisa Colley, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. Opie Hammondvik. Because this is a new series, we want to hear your feedback. So please tell us what you think by emailing us at resident360 at nejm.org or leave us a review in your podcast app. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at nejmres360. I'm Mike Mee, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. Please join us again for our next episode.